Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to jump right in to our sermon text today from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to go uh, from verse 8 all the way through the end of chapter 6. It's all one continuous thought by the author and the preacher here in Ecclesiastes. But before we get into that, just a short amount of review. Last week we talked about how religion without relationship is really just religiosity. It's this kind of empty worship that doesn't please the Lord at all. Our long prayers, our big vows and promises, they mean very little to the Lord, especially when our heart is not in them. And we talked last week also about what God actually values from His people. He values listening, and He values obedience. And He's impressed with sincerity and faith. And so this morning, the passage that we're going to look at, it carries this whole same train of thought that Solomon has actually touched on before, and it's this idea of contentment. So we've got a long passage this morning from chapter 5, verse 8, all the way through chapter 6, verse 12, the end of chapter 6. So instead of reading it all here, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and pause the video if you're watching this morning and take some time and read that text, Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through the end of chapter 6. So pause the video and read that and then come back and join me in just a second. I'll give you just a moment. Okay, hopefully you were able to read that text together as a family or uh, with whoever you're with this morning. And I want to start with just kind of a nutshell. What is he saying in all of this? Well, generally, I think there's one major point that Solomon is getting at. He's telling us, look, it is foolish to think that satisfaction can be found in material wealth. The things of this world, the riches that we have, do not bring ultimate satisfaction. And there are a number of reasons why this is the case, and Solomon takes the extra time to kind of lay those things out. And so glance back at verses 8 and 9 with me of chapter 5. He says, look, first off, don't be surprised when people in power abuse that power because there's a really good chance that they learned it from someone who was in power over them. It's kind of this learned behavior, if you will. They're, they're a product of the system. Now, that does not mean it is an excuse for their behavior, but it, it certainly explains it, I think. Those kind of people, they aren't content with what they have. And so they are going to oppress those under them, and they're going to use people in an attempt to feel more powerful and in an attempt to find meaning in their own lives. But instead, what's better for people is a leader who recognizes the value of the laborer and doesn't oppress them. But instead, he encourages them and promotes them because he knows what really sustains the people. It's, it's the little guy out in the field. It's the, the laborers. And as we're seeing in our day and age, right now, that little guy who's the little guy who's growing the crops and raising the livestock, really, they're not so little at all. They're actually really important to our way of life, to our society and our people. Uh, verses 10 through 12 of chapter 5 then really get into this idea of, of contentment. And some of the things that are mentioned here apply to every person on earth, 
regardless of your bank account, your job title, uh, how many people in your family, all of those things aside, what he gets into here with the idea of contentment and greed apply to every person. Think about this. Where does a, a child learn to be greedy? Where do they learn about this? Do they learn about it from what they watch on TV? Maybe they learn about it from an older sibling. Do they learn about it from their parents? Do they learn how to be greedy from society? Maybe some of their friends are greedy and they learn it that way. Where do people learn about greed? Truth be told, we struggle with greed from a really early age, and you know that to be true if you've ever raised a kid or if you've been around kids at all. Because if you offer... Think about this. If you offer a, a, a young kid, a young child, one packet of fruit snacks or five packet of fruit snacks, and you say you can have one or you can have five, you choose. What are they going to choose? I'd say 10 out of 10 times, they're going to choose all five packets of fruit snacks. Whether they can eat them all or not, they'd probably give it a good shot, but they're going to take the five. Well, I think it's the same way with adults, too. Because if somebody had the ability to offer you, adult, one car free of charge or five cars free of charge, what would you do? How many cars would you take? Would you just take what you need or would you take all of them? Even if you can't drive them all, you're probably going to take five cards, cars. And you can think, well, even the ones I can't drive, I could sell, make a profit, and, and then have, have that money for security. Almost every one of us thinks that more money is going to bring contentment and going to bring satisfaction. We get in this mindset and we think, maybe you've thought this way before, well, if I could just make $10,000 more a year, that would really set us up financially for some cushion and we could have some financial security and we wouldn't have to be so stressed and we wouldn't have to be so worried and our lives would be a lot better and a lot more content. We'd be more content. But you know what? I think you and I both know that when you make more money, you spend more money, which tends to put us right back in the same problematic situation where we were of, well, hey, I just need 10000 more dollars now to be satisfied and secure. We're actually not naturally content with what we have. And so <clears throat> making more and more money our life's goal, verse 10 at the end says, it's just vanity in the end. It is, it's, it's vanity. More wealth doesn't actually bring satisfaction. Now, why is that? Why doesn't wealth bring satisfaction? Well, first, I think it's because the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. In fact, we're told this in Scripture in the New Testament. The love of money leads to all kinds of evil. And and one of those things is never-ending discontentment. The love of money leads to never-ending discontentment. Because if you love money more than your family, if you love money more than your church, if you love money more than God himself, well, guess what? You're never going to be satisfied. You will always be looking for the next way to increase and boost your bank account. 
For instance, someone asked uh, John Rockefeller. He's a guy who lived, uh, he's, he's gone now, but he lived a lot of years and he made his fortune, probably billions of dollars in the oil industry. John Rockefeller. And somebody asked him, they said, hey, what, which was your favorite million? It's a crazy question to ask somebody, but he was rich enough you could ask him, what was your favorite million that you ever earned? You know, a lot of people thinking, well, maybe his first million. He said, an answer that might surprise you, he said, my next million. His favorite is his next million. See, it, it, it might be possible to earn loads and loads of money and still be content, but in reality, for that to happen, it would take a miracle of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 19 that it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. It would take a, it would take a miracle of the Lord for someone who has excessive wealth to put their tr- trust and faith in God. Because with a lot of money comes a lot of putting our faith in that money. We think, well, if I get sick, I can pay uh, to have my health restored. Um, if, if I fall on hard times, I can just go back to the reserve that I have in the bank and, I, and I'll be fine. And so when we have excessive wealth, we tend to put our trust and our hope and even our contentment in that wealth and not the Lord at all. This was illustrated so vividly to us in the story of the, the rich young ruler and his interaction with Jesus. He wasn't, in the end, willing to give up the treasures of this world because he didn't believe that Jesus was enough. Jesus alone was not enough, and he walked away. And you know what? We've really got to fight that same kind of thinking. Even today, whether you have lots of money or whether you have just a little money, do you find your contentment and your satisfaction in Jesus alone. You see, no matter how much money you have, you're never going to be satisfied without Him. So please, I beg of you, please don't waste your life because of the love of money. Your family is going to suffer. And you will never truly be satisfied until you're ready to give everything up in order to follow Jesus alone. So the second reason that more and more wealth uh, never really brings contentment is this extremely profound theological truth that was taught to us by the rappers of the 90s. Mo money, mo problems. See, verse 11, Solomon puts it this way. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Well, you kind of understand what that's talking about. There are endless celebrities and pro athletes and uh, people that have won the lottery. They lose their fortunes very quickly. Many even file for bankruptcy within just years after getting it. Why? Well, it's because people come out of the woodwork when they find out that you've got a lot of money. They want to get their piece of the action. Uh, friends and long-lost fam- family members, all of a sudden, they want to be really close to you. And what once was an enormous amount of money dwindles faster and faster because more, pe- more people are taking pieces away. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. More money, more problems. Now, obviously, this is a concerning thing, and verse 12 says that it leads to sleepless nights, and it leads to worn-out bodies, but not in a good way. See, when you're wealthy, 
you have you are so concerned with maintaining your wealth that you end up missing out on restful and joyful things in life one of which i would argue here is is sleep now <clears throat> if you ask any mother of small kids or probably any mother at all for that matter how much if you ask them how much they value sleep I, I guarantee you at this point it's right up there with more money if if not higher in fact I'd be willing to guess that a lot of mothers would actually pay you to be able to have more sleep if that were possible. It's a joyful thing to get a good night of sleep. I think probably all of you are shaking your heads saying, yeah, that's exactly right. Because we've had those restless nights and those difficult times where it's not easy to sleep and boy, the next day is wrecked and it could, it could bother you for days after that to not get a good night of sleep. But you know what? For the one who loves money, they don't get it. They don't get this restful sleep. Instead, what they get is worry and anxiety. They think that more and more stuff is going to help them sleep better because they'll feel more secure and be more content. But in the end, it really causes the opposite thing. But you know what? Who is content? Who does get a good night of sleep? It's that little old laborer who works hard and is content with what they have. Their sleep is sweet. Now, my dad grew up on a farm in St. Peter's. And so uh, when I got to my teenage years, I would spend a couple of days every summer bucking bales. And we did straw bales and we did hay bales. And I, I did that with my uncle who kind of helped run the farm and my cousins. And so we would work in the heat of the day for hours. And my aunt would be preparing us lunch the days that we were working. And she, I think she made about the same meal every year. And it was pulled pork sandwiches with coleslaw and all the fixings and that sort of thing. So we'd be out in the fields and we would throw bales from the field to the wagon, and then someone would stack them on the wagon, a 10 high or so, and then we'd take the wagon to the barn, we'd toss them up into the hayloft, someone was in the hayloft, and then they would stack them, I forget how many high, in the hayloft, and we'd, we'd pack them all in. And so w- when we were finished for the day, we were covered in sweat and hay and dirt, like from, from head to toe. And we would sit down in my aunt's kitchen for the meal that she would make. And it was like the best thing that we've ever eaten. I can still remember. I haven't had a meal of pulled pork sandwiches that compares still to, to this. It just tasted so good. I come to find out, I'm pretty sure it was all just store-bought stuff that she made and maybe added her own little tweaking to. But it was, it was some of the best food that I've ever had. Well, then that night I would go home, get cleaned up, take a shower, lay down in bed, out like a light, out like a light. And I would sleep like a dead body because I was so exhausted. I had put in a hard day of work. But you know what? You know how I slept that night? Awesome. I slept great. That was some sweet sleep. Now, let me point out here that the text here in Ecclesiastes, it never gives a specific dollar amount that we're supposed to be content with. It doesn't say, hey, earn this much and that's all you need to be satisfied. It doesn't put a dollar amount on it. You know what this tells me? This tells me that this is always a heart issue. It's always a heart issue. So a person can make $200,000 a year and not be content. Or a person can make $20,000 
$20,000 a year and not be content. See, it doesn't matter what your annual salary is. If you love money, you are going to struggle with restlessness and with discontentment as long as you love it more than God. So the truth is, if you love money, it's actually going to cost you. It is going to cost you to be ruled by love for money. It's going to cost you a lot of things. It's going to cost you your relationships. It's possibly going to cost you your family, some friends. It's going to cost you sleep. And potentially, it could cost you eternity if you don't find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ instead. The love of riches hurts your friends, hurts your family, and it hurts you too. Now look at chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. These verses kind of tell the story of a person who was rich, but they tried to hoard their wealth and then ended up losing it in a bad business deal. So they tried to hoard it and then they ended up losing it anyway. It says that riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, which means that being stingy and selfish with your money can actually ruin your health to his own hurt, it says. You lose, you lose sleep, you lose relationships. It can actually hurt your character as well. Look at verse 14. It says that this, this man, he lost his riches, and then, you know what? He had nothing to leave to his son, to his family. He, he couldn't even take care of his own family. And verse 17 also reveals that the selfish and money-driven person is actually never, ever going to be happy. Some of the most potent words that we've looked at in Ecclesiastes so far, it says that this person eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and, and anger. So when a person is driven by the love of money, they're destined to be lonely. It says that he eats, this person eats alone. Trying to find satisfaction in wealth in the end is meaningless, especially if you have no one to share it with in this life. The world and the enemy, they promise all kinds of things. They promise fame and success and joy with earthly riches. But in reality, you just get vexation or irritation. You get sickness and you get anger, verse 17 says. Now, You've heard the saying, well, you can't take it with you when you, you die. And similarly, similarly, you've probably heard the, the story, I think there's even a song about it, about how you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. The, the bottom line is, <clears throat> if you make earthly riches your life's pursuit, it, it's going to be a wasted life. It will be a wasted life. Verse 16 says, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Toiling for the wind is what that's like. Next couple verses talk about how a person, this person comes into the world with nothing, naked, and guess what? Despite all of their work, that person's going to leave the world the same way, with nothing, from dust to dust. You might not lose your life savings in a bad business deal, but you know what? You'll lose it when you die. You can't take it with you. So, Maybe you're out there and you're thinking, okay, Rod, I think I get it. My, my work, my wisdom, my wealth, these things, they don't impress God and they don't make me content. So, so what do I do? Well, I think Solomon shows us the way in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. So pay 
close attention to these verses with me. Instead of wasting your life by pursuing earthly things, he says, enjoy the simple things in life, rejoice in your work, and be content with what you have. That's, that's what we do. Instead of chasing after earthly treasures and earthly things that aren't eternal, we need to enjoy the simple things in life, rejoice in our work, and be content with what you have. And the key isn't how much or how little you have, but rather how you view what you do have. In our home, sometimes when we're dishing out dessert after dinner, our kids might get different size portions of dessert that day. And it could just be because of their age, the older kids get a bigger piece, or it could be because of a reward, they're rewarded for something that they did well that day, and they might get a bigger piece for that. When we, when we don't make them exactly the same size, those portions of dessert, inevitably, Someone with a smaller piece is so upset that their piece was smaller than the others that they whine and they pout. And you know what happens? They don't even end up enjoying the piece that they did get. Isn't that so revealing of our human nature? of our true nature, instead of being content and thankful for what we have, we get all bent out of shape about what we don't have. And then it ruins our mood and we don't end up enjoying what we do have. We must turn our perspective from what we don't have in order to see and enjoy what we do have as gifts of God. That makes sense. I think that's actually what chapter, all of chapter 6 jumps into. Verses 1 through 12, that's really what it's referring to. So not only is everything we have a gift from God, but being able to enjoy them is also his gift. Think about this. To rightly enjoy the things of this world is actually a gift of God's grace. And he gives this gift to his children so they remember where those gifts come from. This is why God might give someone earthly blessings, but not the ability to enjoy them. That's what part of chapter 6 refers to. Someone who has all of these wonderful things, but God didn't give them the ability to enjoy those things. Why would God do that? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. To point that person back to Him. Danny Aiken, in his commentary, says, When you get to the top and get everything you ever wanted, but still feel empty inside then you know that there must be something better and more satisfying out there. God wants to expose our need of Him and show us that riches cannot be ultimate. So, since God knows that true happiness can't be found outside of a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, He's not going to give you something that drives you further away from Him. Lots of children and a long life are mentioned in chapter 6. And these are what Old Testament people knew to be blessings of God. If you had a lot of children and if you lived a really long life, that was a sign of a blessed man in the Old Testament. But you know what? If we don't praise God for these blessings, and if we aren't satisfied in our relationship with Him first, verse 3 says that hundreds of children... And thousands of lifetimes aren't going to cause us to enjoy them any better. Hundreds of kids, thousands of lifetimes, if we don't enjoy God, 
we're not going to learn how to enjoy his gifts any better. So the rich but discontented person is going to be buried alone, it says. And no one is going to mourn them, which is the exact opposite of the family who loses a miscarried child. That child is mourned and remembered and actually celebrated. People care for that child. But the text also says that that, that child it, it never knew the pain of this world or the useless strivings after earthly things, unlike the person who has it all but then ends up dying alone. There's a stark contrast here. Though they both die, the child finds that eternal rest that we were talking about that is sweet, while the rich but discontented person is eternally unsatisfied. They're never truly satisfied because they don't have satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. So verse 9 of chapter 6 says, It's better to be content with what you have, what's right in front of your eyes, than to always be craving more and more, and the next and the latest and the greatest. Because that kind of lifestyle is vanity and a striving after wind, he says again. Verse 10 of chapter 6 calls our minds back to this incredible truth about the sovereign God. I want to talk about that for just a moment. This verse is a reflection on the reality of life that we actually can't see. So we've been dealing in visual, actual things, wealth and and property and uh, riches, that sort of a thing. But he turns his attention to a reality that we actually can't see. And he asks these questions. uh, But the, the answer to these questions is that God is the one who is stronger than he, says in verse 10. And God is the one who has already named everything that has come to be. Makes our minds go back to Genesis 3 and creation story and in the garden. So none of what happens in this life is outside of God's control. And nothing that what happens in this life is beyond his reach. It's already all played out in the infinite mind of God. And it takes place on this earth now exactly as he ordains. And arguing with God over the events of this world and what happens in our lives, it says, is just more words, which in reality leads to just more vanity. It's meaningless to argue with God about these things. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 contains some almost rhetorical questions that I don't think Solomon actually expects us to answer, but I do think we we need to think deeply on these things. These are the questions. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You know, I think about these questions, and they're almost uh, on the depressing end of the spectrum here. But I also think that Solomon's actually just answered those, those questions. He's already told us that the sovereign God knows these things. God already knows. It's already a part of his sovereign plan. And through his word, God is teaching us now how to live this life under the sun. So, work and sleep, and food, and drink, and family, and money, and all of these things and more, God has given us to enjoy as we keep them in the right perspective. They are gifts from God for our enjoyment and to point us back to Him as the giver. But you know what? 
when we take those things and we make them an idol, or if we overindulge in them, or if we misuse them, we actually, we actually perpetuate the brokenness of this fallen world. You know, and we see that. I think every one of us sees that there are so many things that are broken about this world. But our tendency is to then try to, to get out of the brokenness by then misusing or abusing God's good gifts all over again. And then we end up even more broken than before. More stuff, earthly answers, they don't fix the brokenness of this world. And they don't fill the void in our lives. Only being born again by the power of God gives us fulfillment and gives us contentment in this life and in the life to come. So it's only in Christ that are we free to recover God's good design for how we use our money, how to be content with what we have, how to work hard and enjoy our work, and then also how to be generous with what we have. See, the gospel transforms us into people who deeply enjoy what we have and are grateful for it, but then generously give to meet the needs of others. What motivates a person to be content? How can someone be content in this life? There's only one way. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can be content. Because there are people out there who have nothing but Jesus and are more content than the richest people without Him. So if you know that you belong to God and that this life is just your temporary home, you can't be shaken by poverty and you can't be shaken by sickness. You can't even be shaken by death itself. You can be content with where you are in life and with what you have because you're sure and convinced that God knows you and God sees you and God loves you. When you rest in the truth that nothing can take you out of his hand, then just like the Apostle Paul said, you can be content in any situation. In any situation that you find yourself, you can be content because you know who is in control and who holds you. So, if you're feeling discontented today, um, maybe it's because you've been chasing after the things of this world. If that's you, and you are a born-again believer, but you've been chasing after the things of this world, and you find yourself discontented with life, and frustrated, and maybe even angry, let me encourage you, the the recipe here, the, the fix for this, is not to keep pursuing more earthly things. That's perpetuating the brokenness of our world and of our spirit. That's not the answer. The answer is to repent of that kind of pursuit of your life and then be transformed by the power of God's spirit that's dwelling within you. Maybe you're not content today because you don't have the assurance that God is the most important thing in your life. If that's you, if you've never been born again, I would encourage you and challenge you Confess that to God and then put your faith, put your hope, put your, all of your belief on Jesus Christ today. He has told us that he is faithful to save all those who call out to him in faith. And that includes you. Cry out to him in faith today. Let's pray together. In your kindness, Lord, I uh, pray that you would help, help your people recognize You as the giver of all that we have. 
And in that same vein, Lord, give us the ability to enjoy the things that are right in front of us. It doesn't mean we can't have goals. It doesn't mean we can't have aspirations. Lord, but help us to be content first with what you have given us. Uh, Lord, we repent from the pursuit of earthly things and thinking that they are going to ultimately satisfy us. Uh, We thank you that we have confidence in Jesus Christ and that if we call in him in faith, that we will be saved. He will answer us and give us saving faith. Lord, if we're satisfied in anything, let it be that we are content in the gifts of your Son and the gift of your Word. We thank you for it, and I pray that you would help us to be content in Him today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you today.